0: I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. And tonight I intend to conclude our study of the Olivet Discourse of our Lord as it's given to us here in Mark chapter 13 and as you'll also find it in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21. And our focus this evening will be on Mark 13, verses 24 to 37. Let me remind you that it's Tuesday, and Jesus has just left the temple in Jerusalem for good. He will never return to it again. And now he is sitting on the Mount of Olives, which was just east of Jerusalem, and the temple is clearly in view as he's sitting there on the Mount of Olives, and he's speaking to his disciples. He made a shocking prediction, which we have in verse 2, if you look at the text. Remember, he said, Do you see these great buildings? And they were great, magnificent buildings. He says, not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So he predicts the destruction of the temple that was in Jerusalem. And this was shocking to say the least. And it led to the question of the disciples in verse 5, which is what prompted this discourse or this teaching as Jesus set upon the Mount of Olives. So verse 3 Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say. So you see, the question prompts the discourse. And remember in Matthew 24, we have an expanded form of the question they ask When will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Recall as we were looking at this over the past couple Lord's Days, that in the first main section of the discourse, beginning at verse 5, you have a warning against being misled by deceivers and by distressing world events. That's in verses 5 to 8. So he says, take heed, beware. And then in verses 9 to 13, you have a call to endure, especially in the face of persecution for Christ's sake. And then as we looked at last Lord's Day in verses 14 to 25, Jesus foretells events and circumstances leading up to and including the destruction of Jerusalem and, of course, the temple that was sitting there in Jerusalem. Now I want us to read beginning at verse 24 to the end of the chapter, which concludes the discourse. So Mark 13, verse 24. Jesus is still speaking. And he says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man, referring to himself, coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Watch. Let's again ask our God to help us as we open up or seek to open up this text. Gracious God, we thank you that we can depend upon your help in this hour as we gather together as your people to worship you. And we thank you for the help that you have given us today and even for many years. And we pray that you would send your spirit and help us as we seek to understand the words of Jesus and to apply them to our lives. We ask in his name, amen. Amen. The Olivet Discourse has two main focal points, two great focal points like two great mountain peaks. So there's a near focal point, That's the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which Jesus predicted. That happened in AD 70. And then there is the far focal point, the other mountain peak, which is the second coming of Christ and the end of the age, which of course is still future and will come at an unknown day and hour. We're faced with many challenges as we seek to rightly divide this Olivet Discourse of Jesus. And one reason for the difficulty is that our Lord's focus shifts back and forth from the near to the far, near and far, focusing on the destruction of the temple and then focusing on his second coming. And as I understand it, we see this shifting back and forth of focus, especially in our text tonight. This, I believe, is the hardest section of the discourse to interpret. So our first task is to, as best we can, sort out verses 24 to 37. And we'll do this again in an overview fashion as we did last time. So we're still flying the plane, if you were here. I gave that analogy, we're flying, just like Pastor Jim was doing this morning. We're doing that again tonight, giving an overview and trying to sort out these verses And at each division asking the question, what's the focal point? What is in view here? Which great mountain peak? Well, in verses 5 to 13, that first main section, the focus is both near and far. Because Jesus is telling his disciples things that they would soon face persecution, deceivers, and so on. But it's also a far focus because he talks about things that would go on all the way to the end, to his coming. So there's wars and rumors of wars. There's earthquakes, famines, and so on. So he talks about these as the beginnings of birth pangs. So there's a near and far focus in verses 5 to 13. What we looked at last Lord's Day, verses 14 to 23, the focus is Near. At the time Jesus spoke these words, it was about 40 years into the future. And it's the events immediately leading up to the destruction of the temple and including that desolation. But now, what about verses 24 to 27? Or the next section, verses 28 to 31, where we have the parable of the fig tree. And then the final section, verses 32 to 37. What is the focus? Even though much here is not perfectly clear, and I will say it will be debated until Christ returns, there are a few things that are very clear. And here's a few things. Jesus predicted that the destruction of Jerusalem would happen within the present generation of his day, and not that he would return in that time frame of this generation. So that's verse 30, and we'll come to look at that a little bit later. So it's absolutely certain he did not get it wrong. Another thing is that Christ's words will outlast the present created order. As he himself says, emphatically, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And think about this. This speaks of the divinity of Christ, that he is God. It speaks of his glory, that his words shall outlast the creation. Another thing that's very clear is that the focus of the last section, verses 32 to 37, is on the second coming. There is actually general agreement about this. Some people would disagree, but thankful to know there's general agreement. This is something that's quite clear. Verses 32 to 37 focus on Christ's second coming. So those are at least the main things in our text that are certain. So let's come now to the first task of sorting out verses 24 to 37 in an overview fashion. I want us to recall first That I argued last time at the end of the sermon, verses 24 and 25, that those two verses offer a vivid description of the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple using Old Testament prophetic language. Look at those verses again, verses 24 and 25 of Mark 13. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. We find almost the exact language in Isaiah 13, in particular, verse 10. And Isaiah 13 is a prophetic word describing the destruction of Babylon, the future destruction of Babylon at that time, which would be by the Medes, and that indeed happened in 539 B.C., So we find language, almost exact language, within the prophets, Isaiah, and also elsewhere, but this is probably the clearest, where we have something, this language, this cosmic language used to describe the destruction of Babylon as an act of judgment by God. It's figurative language. So we do have biblical warrant to see this as describing the destruction of Jerusalem, and of the temple. This cosmic language, we could call it astronomical disturbances, sun, moon, and stars. It's to be taken figuratively and not literally. As one person says, it indicates an important turning point in history. So the destruction of Babylon, that empire, that was a turning point, And also the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, that was a huge turning point in world history. Another man says this language that's used is powerful symbolism of political changes within world history. Basically, it's prophetic language for events that we might call earth-shattering. And yet, there's an added emphasis upon God's judgment. That's exactly what this desolation of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem was. It was God's judgment against his people, the Jews. So, I argued then for this interpretation. Now, this interpretation that verses 24 and 25 do not refer to events around the second coming, which is what a lot of people would say, but refers to the destruction of Jerusalem. This makes good sense in context, especially following verses 21 and 22. So try to follow Jesus' logic here. Jesus is perfectly logical And as he's giving this discourse, he would have expected his disciples, if not then, then later to understand the logic of what he is saying. So you see in verse 21 that Jesus is warning about people who are saying, look, there's the Christ or there he is. That's within this time of great tribulation leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, the siege, the Roman siege of Jerusalem. And we looked last time at how horrible that time was. And he said, There's going to be people in those days who are going to try to deceive you and say, Deliverance has come because God has sent his Messiah. And we know from history that happened. And people were led astray to their death. He's saying, Do not be fooled. But, you see the but at the beginning of verse 24. That's important. He's giving a correction to what deceivers will say, but it will happen. And then he describes in that prophetic language, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And then goes on to say, then Christ will come. So you see the flow of Jesus' argument. It also explains why Matthew would say immediately after the tribulation of those days, Around the time of AD 70, these things, the sun, moon, and stars, all of these things would happen. So that's a very quick overview of what we looked at last Lord's Day. All of that to say that verses 24 and 25, I believe, have a near reference referring to AD 70. Now, what about verses 26 and 27? Verses 26 and 27, those who understand verses 24 and 25, as I do, tend to see these two verses also as referring to the events of A.D. 70, to Christ coming in judgment, not coming again in glory, but coming in judgment on Jerusalem in time, A.D. 70, and also the global expansion of the church through the ministry of Christ's messengers or his angels. You see that in verse 27. But for several reasons, I think Jesus here has his second coming in view and the gathering in of the elect. Now if we were to land the plane and to walk around and to very carefully consider this, we would need to go back to Daniel 7. Because the language here that Jesus uses is borrowed from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And the language here that Jesus uses, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Let me just read these words of Daniel 7. You can turn there or you can just listen because I'm not going to open them up. But this is where Jesus gets this language, and you find it again and again in the New Testament. This was one of Jesus' favorite texts. There's this vision that Daniel has, a great vision given to him by Gabriel. I was watching in the night visions, verse 13 of Daniel 7, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, that is to God, as He seated on His throne. Look at verse 9 for the context. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom. The one which shall not be destroyed, that's the kingdom of Christ, the Son of Man, as Jesus so often referred to himself. So you see, we are looking here, again, at Old Testament language, as Jesus, in Mark 13, 26, is speaking of his return. Consider briefly a few points in favor of taking verses 26 and 27 as a reference to Christ's second coming at the end of the age. The language, we might say, is simply that of the second coming in the New Testament. And I'm not going to multiply examples here for you, but this is simply the language of of the second coming of Christ. So it's not just seeing the Son of Man coming, but notice that it's, it's coming in clouds, that is referred to. And not just that, but with great power and glory. This is the language that we find of the second coming in the New Testament. Even this ministry of angels, he'll go on to say that he, the Son of Man, is going to send out his angels to gather the elect from all over the world. Even that language about the ministry of the angels We see that often in the text referring to his second coming, that there's angels, that there's a trumpet, as Matthew's parallel has, with a great sound of a trumpet, he will send out these angels to gather the elect. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, there's two key texts I'm going to mention here. Listen to this language. And this is the language our Lord is using in the Olivet Discourse. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And this to me is the key Revelation 1.7, which is very clearly about Christ's second coming. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. And that language of all the tribes of the earth mourning because of him, that is used in Matthew's parallel account of the Olivet Discourse. Now, another thing in Matthew, if we look at Matthew 24, the disciples ask about the sign of Christ's coming and the end of the age. And then Jesus refers to this when he says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and so on. So you see the connection there. He's answering their question, what's the sign of your coming and the end of the age? That's definitely a reference to his second coming. Not a reference to the end of the Jewish age or other things that people have argued, but the end of the age, the end of the world. And Jesus is saying, here's the sign, the sign of the Son of Man. So when he's saying this, that he's coming in clouds, it is speaking of his second coming. That's what I'm trying to argue here. Here's another point. It makes sense in context. So think again about the flow of the argument here. Remember how back in verse 21, he says, beware of deceivers who during the Roman siege are going to say, the Christ is coming, he's delivered us, and we will not go through this destruction and utter ruin. He's going to snatch us out and deliver us. He's saying, no, but the sun will be darkened and so forth. It will happen. Jerusalem will be destroyed, the temple will be destroyed, and then they will see the Son of Man. So he sees argument, not before the destruction of the, of the temple, as deceivers would say, but after, and then they will see. So he's telling us something about the order and the sequence here. And then at the beginning of verse 26, specifies sequence. Like if I were to tell you, I got up and then I made breakfast and then I went to work. It's sequence. That's what we have here. And it doesn't necessarily mean immediate sequence. And that's important to see here. It's important to see. It does not necessarily mean immediate sequence sequence. You could say then we are still living in the and then, as I understand this text. So Jerusalem will be destroyed, Old Testament prophetic language, and then the Son of Man will return. And then that could be however long. Jesus says we don't know the time, so we're still in the and then. So back to the illustration. The focal point The two great focal points are like two great mountains, AD 70, destruction of Jerusalem, and Christ return at the end of the age. And from a certain vantage point, and you you look at these, and even if there might be miles and miles and miles between the two mountains, you can't see that when you're looking straight at it, and it looks flattened. So people often use this illustration when talking of prophecy. That's how it often is. That's, I believe, what we have here. And then, not immediately after, the end then is that great valley between the two peaks of AD 70 and that day, an hour that only the Father knows. So you see, are you following? I know this is tedious, but I think Jesus would want us to understand his logic. So that is how I see this. So those are the first things. We have a near reference in verses 24 and 25, and then this far reference, the second coming in verses 26 and 27. Now, what about the parable? Parable of the fig tree beginning at verse 28 and its lesson there in verse 29. Jesus gives this simple picture. It's drawn from everyday life. He did this all the time. He was a masterful teacher. It's a very earthy picture And it's used to illustrate and to reinforce a simple but a vital point. So let's read this again. Look at verse 28. He says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. It's self-evident. You know that. It signals that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is. Is near at the doors. Two questions that we're confronted with. Two questions as we seek to interpret this. What are these things when you see these things, and what is it that is near and at the doors? If you have the ESV or the NASB, you'll see it says, He is near, but the Greek does not require He. So this is an example of interpretation-driving translation, just like lowercase spirit, uppercase spirit. Pastor Jim was talking about that last Lord's Day. These things seems to refer especially to verses 24 and 23, all the things that would lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And note the language in verse 14. Look back up at verse 14. So when you see the abomination of desolation, he says, you'll know that's the time to flee to the mountains. And then he talks about all these other things. And he's, I think he's saying here, when you see these things, the abomination of desolation, all of the tribulation I've been talking about, and the deceivers who are going to be on the scene saying the Christ is here, the Christ is here, then know that it is, The destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, is near at the doors. Just a simple illustration of what he has been telling them. So the focus in the parable, I believe, is near. It's on the first mountain peak. It's on the destruction of the temple. Now look at verse 31. Verse 31 simply reinforces... Or verse 30, sorry. Verse 30, let's look at that first. Verse 30 is a, quote, problem text for many people. But if you understand that this parable is used simply the way that I just said it, to say that when you see all these things, the destruction of the temple is near, then the problem of verse 30 basically vanishes. Because Jesus then goes on to say, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. The abomination of desolation, the tribulation, the deceivers, and then the destruction of the temple. That's what he's saying. And he was absolutely right. Within 40 years, all of that happened. So we really don't have a problem here. And therefore... I'm not going to spend any time talking about this generation, which many people have spent a lot of time debating. Because there's no reason here to take this generation in any unnatural way. It most clearly, even though it can be used in other ways, generation, it most clearly refers to this generation of people alive at the time that Jesus was saying that. So you see how the problem really is not much of a problem. This is reinforced in verse 31 in very strong language. Look at verse 31 again. After he said, Assuredly, I say to you, he goes on to say, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And apparently this was necessary for Jesus to underscore what he's just said because these things would be very shocking and almost unbelievable to the disciples that the temple would be destroyed, that all of these things would happen. It was almost unbelievable. So he's, he's adding up words to say, this will happen. My words are certain. And with verse 31, and speaking of the heaven and earth passing away, we have a bridge into the final section of the discourse, which focuses on that day, the day of Christ's return, and of the end of the age when the heaven and earth as we now know it will pass away and be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. But Jesus says the disciples must not think that this will happen when the temple is destroyed. It may seem like the end of the world to you, Jesus is saying, but it's not. So, lest they, the disciples, or anyone else misunderstand what Jesus has just said about this generation not passing away till all these things take place, some of you may know that people say Jesus was wrong, he can't be trusted. He is saying right here, lest anyone misunderstand me, I'm not talking about that day. The day of Christ's return, because he says only the Father knows, not the angels, not even the Son. Verse 32 again, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. This is a great mystery. We can't unravel this. Christ, the son of God, he's fully God and he's fully man. He did not in his state of humiliation know all things in his state of humiliation. And this limitation pertains to his human nature and obviously not to his divine nature. But I can't fully explain that. But I know that that's true. As one man says, in their essential oneness, the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, know all things. In their essential oneness, they know all things, the three persons of the Godhead. So here's a great mystery in these words of Christ. So then the discourse concludes with exhortations in light, practical exhortations in light of that day. And the final word, which is in line with the whole tenor and tone of what Jesus has been saying, is a command. It's an imperative. Spoken to the disciples, but then he says to all. That includes us. And he says, be continually watchful. Last words here, he says, and what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Be alert. Be continually watchful. Watchful. So, if you didn't get the details, that's fine. Here's a recap. We're flying over verses 24 to 37. We have tried to sort out the shifting focal points, I've tried not to be tedious. We have the near focal point, 8070, destruction of Jerusalem. We have the far focal point, Christ's return at the last day. Verses 24 and 25, maybe flip back and you can look at it, or if you're still, it's in front of you. Verses 24 and 25, near. Verses 26 and 27, far. Verses 28 and 31 to 31, near. And then verses 32 to 37, a far focal point on the return of Christ. All right, let's apply the text. Let's apply the text now and consider some key takeaways as we look at these things. Now, I think, if nothing else, what I've just gone through will demonstrate this, that we've plainly and clearly seen that all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. That's what our confession says. So not everything is perfectly clear in the word of God. That's true of Jesus' words as well as of Paul's. In Paul's letters, Peter says this, there are some things that are hard to understand. Has anybody ever struggled with Paul? Peter says there's some things that are hard to understand, which he goes on to say, untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, and no doubt to the destruction of sometimes of others. So in coming to the Olivet Discourse, which is admittedly very difficult to understand, at least in some of its parts, and when we come to other hard texts, we need to take special care, and especially that we don't twist what is being said. There's also a good rule here as we think about this, in, that's to focus on what is clear. Focus on the things that are clear and build your practical exhortations. If you're going to draw anything practical from what you're reading and studying or hearing, don't draw it from the things that are unclear, but those things which are clear And also let other clearer parts of God's word come in and shed light on the darker parts of the word. So we saw that here with the Olivet Discourse because as we have Matthew's version, Mark's version, and Luke's version, if something's not very clear in Mark, you can say, well, let me go to Matthew and let me go to Luke and see if they shed any light on this dark part of Mark. And we find that that is the case. But that applies to all the scripture. So as you're studying the word of God, keep this in mind. There's a second thing here. And that is that Jesus has answered their questions. Look at verse 4 again. They're asking Jesus, when is this going to be? What sign should we look for that all of these things are going to take place? He has answered their questions And he's done so sufficiently, but he has not given them every last detail. He's not given them or us everything we might like to know about the days ahead. We don't have it all, but he's given them enough enough revelation, enough light in order to be fully prepared and to be fully equipped to live faithfully to the end. He didn't leave anything lacking. He gave them everything that they needed. You get a hint of this in verse 24 when he says, but take heed, see I have told you all things beforehand. You know everything you need to be aware and to take heed and to be faithful and not to be deceived. They don't need to know every detail, especially of the return, the timing of the return of Christ. He doesn't even tell them exactly when the temple will be destroyed or what season their flight will be in. He just tells them, pray it's not in winter. They might like to know, well, will will it be in winter? Will it be in spring? He doesn't tell them. They didn't need to know. They only need to take to heart What Jesus has told them. They only need to believe what Jesus has told them and they only need to act upon to obey what Jesus has told them. Nothing more and nothing less is expected of them and the same is true of us. The same is true of all scripture which we know is God-breathed, inspired, This is the language of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It's God-breathed, all scripture is, and it's profitable, says Paul, for doctrine or for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, there's probably here a special word for pastors and preachers And what Paul is saying to Timothy, our task is to declare the whole counsel of God. And that counsel is given to us in the pages of scripture. Nothing more and nothing less. That's our task. We are given all that we need. We don't need to look for other revelation and we certainly don't need to lop off portions of God's word. All of it is God-breathed, all of it's profitable and it is sufficient That's a key lesson that we get here from this. It is sufficient, completely sufficient for us. Just like Jesus' words, the Olivet Discourse, wasn't everything they wanted to know, it was sufficient. All of God's word, it's sufficient for us. It's it's everything we need. God, in his infinite wisdom, has withheld many things that we might like to know. And we could talk about it, we could speculate, but that's generally not profitable. Nothing we need to know for salvation and for living a life pleasing to God has been withheld from us. Again, to quote our confession, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. That's in the first chapter, first paragraph. And then in the first chapter, the sixth paragraph, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly, clearly, explicitly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures. It's there, but you have to draw it out by logical reasoning. He's saying we've got everything we need to be saved and to be godly and to glorify God. Do you believe that? We have a treasure in the word of God. We have so much here in our Bibles. Everything we need and we have the Holy Spirit in us to help us understand and to apply what we find in the word of God. So, not everything's a light clear. Jesus has answered their questions sufficiently but he didn't give them everything. But a third take away here would be the certainty of Christ's future coming, the absolute certainty of his future coming. He, the Son of Man, will come, as he said, in the clouds with great power and glory. Think quickly about this. It will be a visible coming. If we're alive when he comes, we will be able to see it. Then they will see the Son of Man coming. You'll see it. All will see even. Nobody's going to need to point it out, say, hey, look, Christ is coming. Everybody will see it. And it will be obvious. There will be no concealing when Christ comes again. If you look at Matthew 24, the parallel there, Matthew 24 30, it says all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see all the tribes of the earth will see the son of man coming. It's going to be a visible coming, but also a personal coming, coming of the son of man, the person of Christ, the God man. It's a personal coming and all of this implies that it's a physical coming. Not some spiritual coming, but a physical coming of the Lord Jesus in his glorious resurrected body. Do you remember at his ascension when his disciples were there? They're looking up into heaven. Because the resurrected Lord, who had been with them for a while, is caught up into heaven. And then there's two angels there that speak to them as they're still looking, men of Galilee. They say, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Acts 1.11. So it's visible, it's personal, it's a physical coming that we expect, but it's also an awesome coming. And I mean that in the truest sense of the word, an awe-inspiring, an awesome coming. Think about it very different from his first coming, from the humiliation of his first coming. He will come and it will be awesome. As one man puts it, the clouds of heaven will be his chariot as he returns. His divine glory and his power will no longer be veiled, but he says they will see the Son of Man coming with great power and glory. And this awesome day will be terrifying to all who did not obey the gospel. And people will seek to flee at that time, but it will be too late. But for the saints, this day will still be awesome. For those of us trusting in Christ, it will be awesome, but it will also be a day of gladness and of rejoicing in the triumph of our Savior. And in the triumph of his everlasting kingdom, as he comes back victorious and our salvation is completed. And as Jesus is going to go on to emphasize, this coming, which is visible, it's personal, it's a physical coming, an awesome coming. It's also a sudden and unannounced coming. Nobody knows the day. Nobody knows the hour except The Father, it will be as in the days of Noah. We read that in Matthew 24, the parallel. It will be as in the days of Noah when the flood came upon the world and swept people away unaware. They were just going on about their business, living and doing things that in and of themselves were not sinful. Eating, drinking, marrying, and so forth but they were taken by surprise and caught up in the flood. It's going to be the same way when the Son of Man returns. Unannounced, sudden. A fourth takeaway. When Christ comes, he will assemble, bring together into one, all of his blood-bought people, all of his people for whom he died, the elect in every age, from every tribe, and tongue, and nation. Look again at verse 27. He says, After he comes, and then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. In other words, what does that imply? It implies that the gospel is going to advance and there's going to be God's people in all of the world when he returns. Christ will build his church. The gospel will be preached to all the nations before the end. Remember verse 10 of the discourse where Jesus says, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. He means before the end comes, the gospel must be preached to all the nations And this implies, as he's gathering the elect through the ministry of the angels, that that gospel, that word of God, will not return void. People will be saved as the gospel is preached. So there's certainly an encouragement to missionaries and for us to continue supporting missionary efforts and praying and doing what we can because it will go out, the gospel, into all the nations. And God has his elect in all the nations, and they will all be gathered on that day. But then it's a sweet reminder of our hope. Reminds us that we shall be gathered together all into one at the day of resurrection as the redeemed people of God, redeemed by the blood of Christ, and we shall be with the Lord forever. So it's a sweet reminder of our hope as we think about These angels gathering the elect on that great day. Well, finally, fifth takeaway. This is what the whole discourse has been driving toward. And it's this, how we should live in this present age in light of these realities. You see how practical it is? I've been trying to emphasize that throughout, that Jesus has very practical and pastoral concerns. And he's not giving us these things in order to speculate, but to help us to be faithful and to be ready for that day, which will come suddenly and unannounced. So look at verse 33. Just after he says that only the Father knows, he says, take heed, beware. We've already seen that three times, four times in the Olivet Discourse here. Take heed, take heed, take heed, take heed. Watch and Pray, for you do not know when the time is. It's getting very practical. This isn't just theory. It's not just sort this out and and have this intellectual exercise. He's saying you need to watch out and live in light of these things. And he's saying this to all of us, not just to his disciples. So he says, watch This is an interesting word. Literally, keep yourself awake. Stay awake. If you've ever driven really late at night, and maybe you've been driving through the night, and you're trying to keep yourself awake, that's the idea. Stay awake. Keep yourself awake. Do what it takes. Drink coffee. Stop. Take a nap. Smack your face. Those are the things we do. He's saying take action to keep yourself awake spiritually. That's the point. And that's the title of my message is Stay Awake. Then he says pray. There's a textual issue here that I'm not going to get into, but I think if you have the ESV, you won't see that. But the command certainly fits. And if you look at the parallel in Luke, it says watch therefore and pray always. Pray always. Watch and pray. Then he goes on and he illustrates, as he so often does, this exhortation to wakefulness. And he gives a very, again, simple, vivid illustration. He says, beginning at verse 34, it's like a man going to a far country who left his house and he gave authority to his servants and to each his work. And then here's the emphasis, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. It's actually a different verb than the first watch. He commanded the doorkeeper to watch, to stay vigilant, to be watching. Then he goes on and says, verse 35, watch therefore, just like this doorkeeper. He's still speaking of the doorkeeper, really. For you do not know when the master, the Lord of the house is coming. Then he says, it might be in these different watches. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, in the morning, you don't know. But watch, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all. So watch, be on the alert. We get the name Gregory from that verb, actually. Be on the alert, says Jesus. Now, some of you hearing this message, who heard the other messages, heard what Pastor Jim was just saying, some of you, the word for you is very clear, and it is to wake up. Wake up to the reality that you have Not just a body, but a soul. And that your time here is limited. And that there are spiritual realities and there's a spiritual kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. The kingdom of Christ, which will triumph. And there is a day coming, a day of judgment. And there will be people alive when Christ comes. And he will be seen visibly. And there will be the resurrection too. So maybe we'll all see it. But that day's coming, and a day of judgment is coming. These are real things. Jesus is saying this in order to wake some people up who are so focused on the things of this life that they forget these ultimate realities. So that's the main thing for some of you here, is to wake up, this is a spiritual wake-up call, to eternal matters, ultimate realities, Do not waste time. As we looked at last week, flee to the mountains without delay. Flee to Christ without delay. Turn from your sins. Get right with God. Don't waste another day because you do not know when Christ will return. But for others, for many of us believers, there's still a need to stay awake. God has awakened us by his grace. We love the Lord. We're holding fast to the Lord. But we still need to hear this. Jesus says, stay awake, be watchful, be vigilant. You don't know when that day will come. So we need to take action in order to stay awake. And that's something for you to meditate on. There's many things we could talk about. Not least would be we need to do what we're doing right now making use of the Lord's day, sanctifying it, gathering here to pray, to worship, to encourage one another, to admonish one another. And we have that language in Hebrews 10, which keeps the day of Christ in view. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. I hope we do that as we gather, to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, comma, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. See what he's saying? In light of the day, that's the day of Christ, the day of his return, so much the more we need to be exhorting each other and doing what we're doing today as the day is approaching and every day it's nearer. We need to be like Paul, who lived, as one man has put it, with a fundamental orientation to the end of the age. Paul had that day, or the day of Christ. Go look it up in his letters. He was constantly speaking of it. Even as he's saying, I'm confident that the Lord who has begun a good work in you, he will complete it until the day of Christ. He had a fundamental orientation to that great day that Jesus is saying we need to be watchful of. And we need to be the same way. Paul gives us a very concrete example of a man, a believer who lived with that day clearly in view in his prayers, in his encouragements to others, in his day to day life. We need to remind ourselves Christ is coming. It's so easy, isn't it, to get sleepy, spiritually speaking, to get dull. We get busy. Maybe we over-entertain ourselves. Whatever it is, we can get dull spiritually, and there's things we need to do to stay awake in light of the coming of Christ. We end with the words of Peter. Peter, who sat on the Mount of Olives as Jesus was giving this discourse. And I like to think that it was in the evening. It probably was. You know, he had a long day, Tuesday in the temple. Maybe the sun is setting and there's the temple as, as, as Jesus is sitting and giving this discourse. Peter was there. I want to end with these well-known words of Peter in Second Peter 3, where we read, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Speaking of the promise of his return. But the day of the Lord, that great day, will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. According to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can consider such wonderful truths. And Lord, we pray that you would give us help for the things that are unclear Help us by your spirit to understand these things better and to profit from our meditations this evening. But Lord, especially to focus on the things that are absolutely certain about the glory and the divinity of Christ, about his coming, about our need, everybody's need to be ready for that day. We Thank you that we've been able to gather in your house to encourage each other, to stir each other up, As that day approaches, help us to keep it in view, to live for your glory faithfully to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.